iTunes presents Meet the Author. Will you please join me in welcoming Stephen Fry? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Why, thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to see you all here. Thank you. I was very scared there wouldn't be anybody after, as you may know, yesterday's uh, debacle uh, with the, uh, the heavens dropping the white things all over us in an exciting and cold way, which made us all very happy, but unfortunately postponed this event. So a very warm welcome to you, and especially warm one to my faithful family of Fry followers on Twitter, who are, are, are always very pleased to see, of course. Um, as you probably know, this is being, going to be podcast. It's a, it's a talk, it's not a lecture. Um, uh, I, I wanted to, to talk to you here, I suppose, about a number of things, um, and uh, I'll see... Um, my motto is, uh, how can I tell you what I think until I've heard what I'm going to say? So um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say, but let's hope the spirit will move me. What I really wanted to start with, as we are here in an Apple store in January, February, uh, early February um, 2009, many of you will know this is the 25th anniversary, the Silver Jubilee of the Macintosh computer. It arrived in January... Uh, 1984, and I uh, was, I believe, the second person in Britain to buy one. Uh, it was perhaps the most exciting moment in my life, which says a great deal about the depth of sadness that uh, uh, is addressing you here this evening. Uh, the first, as you may well know, was the late lamented Douglas Adams, one of the great Apple advocates, one of the great advocates of the digital, digital age, one of the great prophets in many ways of the digital age. It doesn't take much to see the connection between his famed Hitchhiker's Guide and the kinds of device that we're all now probably carrying in our pockets. There's a, there's a way to go, as there should be, but we'll come back to that idea of the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, in, in a moment. I ought to sort of backtrack in two ways. My, there's the personal story I wanted to tell you about me and digital technology, and there is the more important story of the world and digital technology. I'm not going to go all the way into the discovery of packet switching for AT&T and the, the more technical side of it for two reasons. One is you understand it better than I do, uh, and two is I don't understand it at all. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I can bullshit about it. As, as you will discover, I can bullshit about most things, which is uh, the more important skill in this degraded age. Uh, however, the important thing for me is probably the Altair, which was the first, if you like, kit home computer. Um, and, and it inspired a lot of people in the early 70s uh, with the idea that there was going to be such a thing as a computer that you could have in your house. Um, in the 1930s, there was a, uh, a book that I remember, and again, I'm referring to Douglas Adams here. He showed me he had a copy of it, and I'd had the same one that had belonged to my father. It was called The Boy's Wonder Book of Science, and it showed one of the new inventions of the 30s, which was the electric motor, which was an extraordinary invention. And they realized how extraordinary it was because you could drive things... Um, just from the mains current, you could, you could drive this belt 
and this wheel. And once, as you know, in, in engineering, once, you, once you've got something going round, it can then go up and down, or once you've got something up and down, it can go round and round, because all kinds of camshafts and pistons and things can mean that once you've got an engine that takes things round and round off the electric mains, the future is yours. And they showed a house of the 1960s, as they imagined it, with this enormous electric motor in the middle of it, and it was driving washing machines, and it was driving all kinds of devices, record players. Anything that needed movement was being driven, and there were belts going through the house. This is what a house in the 60s would look like. Now, they only made one mistake, and that is instead of one big electric motor, there were lots of little ones. And you have an electric motor probably on your person in some way. Uh, um, and, and you have hundreds in your house without knowing about them. What that book was suggesting was that you had to be electric motor literate but you don't have to be electric motor literate. People who make things that involve electric, uh, electric motors have to be human literate. And the same thing happened with computers. In the early 70s, everyone talked about computer literacy. We're going to have to have a generation of people who are computer literate. They were going to have to know everything about how computers are built and how they're made and how they're programmed, because that's the only way anyone will be able to use them. And in the early days, with the Altair, that's what they were. These, the first edition of Byte magazine came out. And it was a very exciting period. And two, two amazing men, both with the most important name in digital science, Stephen. Um, <laughs> one Wozniak, one Jobs. They were Steves, let's be honest. Um, Woz and Steve Jobs, uh, in, in a garage in California, came up with a computer that they called Apple. Um, and their second bash, the Apple II, really started to penetrate the market. A small market, but an astonishing one. Uh, you probably know the famous story of one of, the, uh, one of the chief executives of IBM, which at the time was the largest company in the world. Not just the largest computer company, it was virtually the only real computer company. It was the largest company in the world. Um, and earlier in the 1950s, one of their chief executives said that he could foresee the need for only five digital computers in the world. You know, that there would be the US government would have one, maybe American Express, maybe, maybe one of the big airlines like Pan Am, whatever happened to that. <laughs> and, um, but the idea that even small businesses needed a computer was, was very alien. It reminds one again of another prediction, that of Alexander Graham Bell, who said in a moment of insane vanity about his invention, the telephone, he said, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say that I believe that one day there will be a telephone in every town in America. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you just, the, anybody, again, to quote Douglas Adams, as he said, um, I did a radio program in the year 2000, and somebody asked him about how technology would go, and he said, I don't think you should ask computer people anything to do with the future. They were terribly surprised by the fact that the year 2000 followed the year 1999. <laughs> so <laughs> they're not good at guessing what happens next. But um, anyway, this, this computer seemed, to, it didn't take off, but it became famous. There were magazines, Apple User Magazine and various others came out. They were called microcomputers because they were tiny little things. Um, there was no real use for them in offices particularly, but a few smart people started to use them and to program for them. And, and new programs started coming out, things called spreadsheets, which are, uh, uh, of course are the absolute bane of the world now, but uh, at the time were very new, VisiCalc and things like that started to arrive. And then IBM, having thought that this whole thing was nonsense, realized they were going to have to bring out something similar. Uh, they, were, they were astonished to see that there genuinely was a market for 
for owning a computer. To them, it seemed insane, but and we could talk about the history of IBM, which is one of the most extraordinary corporate histories in the world, incidentally, and one of great immorality and, uh, and, and the longest antitrust case in, in, in American history until the United States versus Microsoft. But um, anyway, uh, there we are. They come out with this thing. Charlie Chaplin then advertised it. It was the I IBM PC, personal computer, uh, and it ran an operating system called CPM, which was a command line operating system, as the Apple's was. Uh, and things went on that way. You put in a big, square, black cardboard disk, um, and you ran programs, and you could do a few things. Word processes uh, were, were possible. There wasn't much memory available, but it, it all started to, to look pretty good. And then other micros came out, uh, as they were called, microcomputers. The BBC micro was one of the most successful in the United Kingdom. It was made by Acorn. Uh, and it was a marvelous machine, and that was the first proper machine I bought. Uh, and it connected to a television screen uh, uh, using a sort of normal, you know, little sort of uh, the kind you'd use for, for a video player. And, uh, and you, you, the programs were on tape cassettes. Uh, they made a squawking noise like, a, like, like a, a fax machine, and you would run little programs on it. And that's how the early 80s proceeded through to the magical time 25 years ago when Apple decided to bring out something that seemed entirely new to the marketplace. As you probably know, it wasn't entirely new because they'd had a machine called the Lisa, which was the first to have, well, let's just say that Bill Gates, when he saw it, said, mice are for wimps, which was a joke. Uh, uh, Bill Gates' idea of a joke, uh, because wimps stood for something. It stood for windows, icons, Mice and pull-down menus, W-I-M-P-S. In other words, what we'd now call a, a GUI, a, a graphical user interface. Instead of a command line of words that were typed out on a green screen, you had a graphical representation of a kind of mini-world where you would have a big box which contained things, and if you double-clicked this mouse, it would open it, and they would seem to be inside it. And there would be a bin to which you could drag things you didn't want, and it was called a desktop. And it was a, a weird sort of visual metaphor for, for a way of working. And nothing had been seen like this before. It came, as again, I'm sure many of you will know, it came from, of all things, uh, a photocopying company, Xerox, one of the best-known photocopying companies, who, whose headquarters were in Palo Alto in California, and they had a research center known as PARC, P-A-R-C, the Palo Alto Research Center. And at the Palo Alto Research Center were some remarkable computer scientists who had devised this idea of mice and windows and pull-down menus, this graphical user interface, this GUI. Um, and they had posited, and it was only, they couldn't build it, they had, they had posited the idea of what they called the Diner Book. And the, the Diner Book was, if you can imagine, there could ever be such a thing, a small book, say, yay big, which could communicate with the world, allow you to communicate with other people, allow you to input text and receive text, and have a store of knowledge on it, and be able to play possibly even music and pictures, this whole thing. It was an impossible dream. It seemed so unlikely. But it was, it was a use of what you might call, without getting too pretentious, a kind of platonic paradigm. In other words, you suggest something that is way beyond your reach. And as the poet Robert Browning said, that, you know, that a man's reach is beyond his grasp or what's a heaven for. 
And this was the computer heaven, something to reach for that we would never surely attain in our lifetimes. This diner book, diner from the Greek, dinos obviously meaning energy, as in dynamic. And, um, but it inspired people to think that maybe there was a way of constructing computers that were not dull, nerdy command lines where you just typed in some... I mean, to, to get a list of the files you had on a CPM computer, an IBM computer in the early 80s, was, was an extraordinary procedure. DIR for directory plus backslashes and all kinds of colons and letters. And eventually you'd get a, a list to, uh, in, in green on the screen of, of hideous names of files that you couldn't do anything with. You couldn't double-click the list because there was no way of clicking it. You just had to type in its name. I mean, it was unbelievable. But it seemed very exciting until until 25 years ago, when suddenly this new way of looking at all the information stored on a computer, the idea that rather than we, the user, having to know about it, having to be computer literate, this computer seemed to be human literate. It was talking our language in as much as it taught the language of, of metaphor, of a symbol, of a, of a desktop. And the moment I saw it, it was like falling in love. I cannot tell you how excited I was I admit that's sad. Others may have done it for a car, or even, I believe, it's possible with human beings. But for me, it was this box, this, this box with a footprint of a, a piece of A4 paper and, and a little slit for, for, for a new kind of floppy disk. It was actually not floppy, but in a sort of hard shell, and you'd pop it in. Didn't have a hard disk at all inside. It just had a, you know, this little floppy. But uh, it was enough to run things, and you could use this mouse to move a, an arrow on the screen. I mean, it, it was... I can't tell you what it was like. And then a few months later, they brought out a printer that was simply beyond belief. It was called the laser printer. And I paid £7,000 for one. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think I was the first individual rather than company to own such a thing. And I would send people letters on it, and they would <laughs> ring me up and say, Stephen, you've written me a letter, and then sent it to the printers. What <laughs> the hell are you playing at? I say, no, no, that's my computer printer. Computer printers at this time went... <laughs> they were called dot matrix printers, and they made the shape of a letter out of a matrix of dots, and hence the name. Um, but this thing, wow! And then was born desktop publishing. Now, Meanwhile, the IBM carried on its way, but it realized that CPM was rather... It, it had, um, shall we say, gone past its sell-by sell by date, and they needed a new operating system. And IBM thought, well, well, I suppose we'll buy CPM2. And the guy who coded CPM was being very slow about CPM2 and was a little bit arrogant and had, I believe, um, you know, other issues. Uh, <laughs> and, and this little creature <laughs> called William Gates who had a company called Microsoft that sort of made software, bought, didn't write, didn't devise, bought something called QDOS, Quick and Dirty Operating System, QDOS. Off, sort of off the shelf, bought it outright. Changed it, I'm not saying he's, you know, and renamed it MS-DOS after his company, Microsoft. And then he went to IBM the largest company in the world, made all computers, and said, you don't want CPM2, you want this, this is much better. Um, and you don't have to worry about badging it and recoding it or doing anything, we'll do all the work for you. Um, just, you know, you, you can license us to have it in, 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 in the different machines. And IBM, in the single stupidest moment in corporate history on this planet, said, okay. And with that moment, 
they committed suicide as a company, essentially. As you probably know now, their the, the think pads and their the, the, the personal computers are now Chinese. They don't even own the computer company that we recognize anymore. They still make and research and do interesting things, I, I grant you. But my God, what they did in that moment was they thought making the box was what counted. And they gave all the power to the man who'd bought this operating system called MS-DOS, which was also a command line. It, wasn't, it didn't have a, a graphical user interface. He still thought those were for wimps, Gates. He thought the Mac was a toy for children or for posing artists, as many people still think to this day. And, and so people, when they bought a computer, there's an old saying in, in the data managers, as, IT managers, as they'd now be called, was you never got fired for buying IBM. In other words, you ran the data and computing system for your company and you bought IBM computers, no matter how shit they were, and believe me, they were shit. <laughs> the, you, the boss would say, this is a terrible system. He'd say, well, it's IBM. He'd say, well, he got IBM. <laughs> so it was like the gold standard, apparently, at least in people's heads, because they'd heard of it. Um, and so people bought it. But then other computer manufacturers thought, well, we'll make computers just like IBM's computers, and they'll be able to run that operating system and all the, all the software that runs that on that operating system. And this was known as the IBM compatible. And so other companies arose that started making computers, and they could also license, they could also pay Mr. Gates to, to run that operating system. And suddenly, IBM wasn't even the biggest computer maker anymore, because anybody could make an IBM compatible. And meanwhile, little Apple struggled on, pioneering, making extraordinary new leaps. And as would inevitably happen, the huge power that accrued to, uh, to Microsoft over a very short number of years, they also did develop, and they decided that they, would want, they wanted to copy what Apple had, a graphical user interface, and they came up with Windows as we know, which went through several years of being terrible. And it was an operating system on top of another operating system. It, it, it sort of sat on the MS-DOS shell, as you probably know. Anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. And Apple's death was predicted, because basically now, what was its USP, as people would say? What was the unique selling point of the Apple when, when frankly, the IBM compatible, now called Wintel, because it, it used Windows and an Intel uh, processor, those machines that were all compatible with each other, they all ran this Windows software. It was 97% of the home and business computer market. What's the point of this niche little glossy player? What's, what's the advantage of it? And in the meantime, just to go back to a little bit to Apple's story, there was a man called John Scully, who, who was um, the head of uh, Pepsi-Cola. And he did something, you may think, how can this be relevant? He did something unthinkable in the, um, in the equivalent of the Nielsen's, the rating system for soft drinks. And believe me, in America, these are taken very seriously. And in the most important rating system for soft drinks, which is the supermarket court bottle. Yeah. Um, Pepsi overtook Coca-Cola one day. This had never happened before. John Scully was the CEO. And Steve Jobs, who was the sort of the business end, the front end, the, 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 the man who was not famous then, except amongst us nerds, um, for him, that said one thing. Because to him, IBM was Coca-Cola, and he was Pepsi-Cola, and he wanted to do the same. He wanted Apple to beat um, uh, not IBM anymore, but Microsoft. And he hired John Scully and said, come on, I want you to run Apple with me, and we will beat 
we will beat the IBM, Wintel, MS-DOS, Windows, uh, Nexus. And John Scully said, no, I don't know anything about computers. And in the famous phrase, uh, Steve Jobs said to Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want to change the world? Scully said, oh, okay. <laughs> so he came to Apple, and a few months later fired Steve Jobs. It was an unbelievable moment. This is real, suddenly hard business. The man who'd founded the company and begged him to come, John Scully persuaded the board that he was a liability, told him to piss off. So Steve Jobs left Apple, fired from his own company, and he, fu he founded his own company, which he called Next. And they produced a computer, which happens, I have, I'm very lucky, I have as kind of almost box-fresh, perfect Next computer. And the reason I think it's a very exciting thing to own is because the next computer, although it was not a gigantic success, I, I saw one corporation that sold it, I mean, that used it a great deal. That was the William Morris Agency in, in Los Angeles. I just happened to see them. They had them all over. And, and that, they had them for about a year and a half. But the thing about the next that really changed the world was that it was a next computer that a British computer scientist who was sent to Switzerland to sort out the computing problems of the Centre Européen de Recherche Nucléaire, known as CERN, where they have a big accelerator, and now, of course, they have a large hadron collider. He took a next computer and wrote a series of programs so that all the different computers that the different physicists and scientists at CERN had could talk to each other and swap documents using metatext. And he called his protocol Hypertext Transfer um, Protocol, HTTP, and he called the system, after much thinking, the World Wide Web, which, as you know, was a big step forward in, in, in the use of computing around the world. And that happened on a Next computer. And I have the exact formulation of Next computer that Tim Berners-Lee designed the web on. And I am trying to persuade him, I know him a little, trying to persuade him to let me have a cloned copy of his original optical disk, which is what they used, so that I could have a sort of mirror of the first ever website in the history of the planet, which I'd be very excited by. Because as I told you, I am sad. <laughs> um, anyway, so Apple is bumbling along under John Scully now, and Steve Jobs has been fired and is running Next, which is not a huge success. What's interesting about it is it's a Unix-based computer, interesting to those of you who are interested in such things, uh, that he, he builds his own operating system, uh, uh, but using a Unix kernel. Um, which he really believes in, because he believes that the Unix is absolutely marvelous operating system for networking. Now, this is the late 80s, early 90s, and as I say, Tim Berners-Lee was just writing the, 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 the World Wide Web, so the Internet was a very small thing indeed. It didn't yet have a, a World Wide Web. It only had email and FTP, a thing called Gopher and uh, Waze and Janet and Veronica, various search engines, or not search engines, but search mechanisms, if you like. Um, and in fact, Tim Berners-Lee told me that he took his next to a next conference that Steve Jobs held in Paris and tried to meet him and show him what he'd written, but it was very busy and he never got a chance to show him. And they've never met. It's rather sweet. Anyway, um, uh, he then founded another company because he was very interested in, in graphics called Pixar. Um, where, where they started making these amazing CGI films, which I'm, I'm sure you know that John Lasseter and Disney and various others have, have made these marvelous films like Toy Story and so on. And it started off with that Luxor one with the, with the, you know, with the lamp, and, which is still their, their opening logo. Um, and by this time, Apple was in, its, in real trouble. 
It, it hadn't worked, whatever John Scully had done hadn't worked, and its next CEO hadn't been a success. Wozniak had long retired, and um, Steve said he'd come back and take a dollar a year salary to come back, and some shares, if that was all right. Um, and he found a recently joined young Englishman in the, in the design department, and they instantly got on. He, he was fascinated by what this Englishman had been drawing on bits of paper, these mad prototype ideas for computers. And the Englishman's name was Johnny Ive, and not Ives, but Ive, Johnny Ive. And together they hatched the plot to produce a new, a new desktop computer, which they called the iMac. And it was in transparent plastic in a color known as Bondi Blue, and I'm sure those of you old enough will remember it. It wasn't that long ago, it was in the mid-90s, but it seems a long time ago. Uh, and it was beautiful to behold. It was an astonishing thing to touch, to look at, and to own. You could pick it up in one hand. It was the shape of an old-fashioned television. In other words, a, it had a cathode ray tube screen, not a flat screen. But nonetheless, it was a beautiful object and really terrific. And then came out a stream of developments on that, um, little iBooks, and the word I was born. And then a music player, uh, the iPod, the first iPod. Uh, and, and really, you don't need me to fill in the gaps up to the present with the arrival of the iPhone and, and all the marvelous unibody versions I see you've got on your laps here and the, uh, and, and the fact that Apple uh, then opened retail stores. And, and suddenly, suddenly, people got the message um, that these things we live with, these computers, they're like office blocks for most people. In other words, most people in, in, the, in the Western world because they don't work in steel furnaces or, or, or anything, they work in places where there is one of these computers, and it's likely to be an office. And they, they step into the environment of their computer in the same way as they step into an office block. And we all know how destructive to the human spirit is a gray, ghastly, sick, modern building that has no thought, no joy, no architectural flair or imagination behind it. But only Apple seemed to understand that the same was true of stepping into the environment of a computer. That the dullness and contemptuous views of the business side of computing was such that it, all it was supposed to do was, was do a job. It was not supposed to give you pleasure. Well, that's not good enough. We're only on the planet for a short time. Why can't all the things that make us human, our sense of color, our sense of design, our sense of flair and joy, aesthetic pleasure, our sense of the wit of a thing, why can't they be engaged in the thing we spend our lives inside? And people who first played with an apple realized that this was the place where they were thinking that. Now, I don't have shares in Apple. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't accept when I work for them, not like today, accept free gifts. They're very kindly paying me in Apple materials today. But um, <laughs> I, I, I want it understood that I am a personal evangelist for Apple, not because I have an absolute belief in Apple above anybody else. If someone else came up with stuff as good, I would be just as thrilled. In fact, the only sad thing about Apple until recently is that no one else has taken up the torch. Fortunately, with the arrival of the iPhone, they so disturbed the smartphone business that people have there been influenced by Apple enormously and have really taken up the fight for a good phone. So that is a very brief sketch of, of my commitment to and love of, if you like, the, the digital world and particularly through the prism of, of Apple. Um, but I just wanted to say a couple of quick things before I throw this open to, uh, to, to questions, if you have any for me. Uh, and one was the, um, the whole idea of, of, of computing and uh, computers as being 
inimical to, um, to proper natural human development, human intercourse, human communication, and, and so on. Now, of course, they are a technology, and we hear the word technology, and we immediately think, therefore, they are in some way cold, they are in some way non-organic, whatever that actually means. Really, very little, to be honest. Um, but if you take something like, because one of the things I was going to mention was, was audiobooks, um, if you take something like storytelling, which became literature, it was an oral tradition. It literally was storytelling. It was people around a fire talking to each other, telling a story, spellbinding their neighbors and their families and their friends and their tribe and their people with stories, and then with poems and songs and, and so on. That was the way people communicated. That was the natural way, if you like. And then along came a technology where you could make an impress into a piece of wax or stain uh, a, a piece of papyrus uh, and pass it around to those who, who understood the code behind this impress or this stain, this strange squiggle, and reading began. But it was obviously a very small affair because you had to have the right piece and you had to have been trained in reading, which takes a long time. Uh, but then Gutenberg came up with the printing press, of course, and, uh, and, it, and it exploded so that many more people began to be able to read. But isn't there a way of saying, actually, that was the moment it stopped being human. That was the moment it actually moved away from the warmth and real-time uh, animation, if you like, that, that lay behind the first human storytelling around a fire. A fire, incidentally, is a good word because it's a hearth. And our word heart comes from hearth. And, and funnily enough, the Latin for a hearth is focus. So our whole sense of whenever we are focused, we are, as it were, around a fire. And, and, and we talk to each other and we connect. Well, books are very lonely and unsocial things. Yes, you've, I'm, don't get me wrong, I love books. But, but you are engaged with an individual author and it's a marvelous feeling, but it is, it, 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 the idea that it is somehow a more natural form of communication than a, than a laptop computer is nonsensical. They're both technology, just one happened to come before the other. And the thing to me that's so releasing about digital technology is it actually takes one back. And when you buy a computer, there isn't a law that says you have to burn all your books. You can do both. The idea that you're either a computer person or a book person is nonsensical and obscenely insulting to human intelligence and human variety. Whoa. As is, oh, I'm so sorry. I got my ear got excited. Because um, <laughs> we're, um, we're coming to my ear. Because now I can walk around town uh, and, and I can, or I can sit or I'll be wherever I, I want and I can have a human voice telling me a story again. It's been a long time since I've been able to control that in the way that I can. It has been possible, of course, since the invention of radio to have stories told to you. But much, it was very hard to move around with them and to control them as you want them and to have them when you want them. We've now got storytellers by the thousands at our beck and call. And we can either play them to our families in one go or to ourselves uh, in, in the form of audiobooks. So there is an example of a computer, it seems to me, or computer science and digital technology, actually going back in time. And the other thing is those who attack text language, for example. Well, some of the extremes of leet talk and lol talk and all the rest of it are a little bizarre to the non-initiated. Um, but uh, that's true of anything. Uh, if you look at an 18th century or 19th century letter written by Samuel Johnson or Swift or all the way up to Byron, you will notice 
that they speak in text talk because paper was very expensive. The posting of paper was immensely expensive. This is before the penny post was introduced and there was no post office. You, you, you either got your letters franked by a, a, a member of parliament or an, uh, an aristocrat who were the only people who could frank a letter. Um, and if you couldn't do that, which most people couldn't, you had to pay a lot for a letter to be sent. Uh, and the more pages it was, the more it cost. And so people wrote YR for your um, and, and they compressed every word they possibly could. And they wrote what we'd now call text language. But they happened to be called Lord Byron and, and Wordsworth and Jane Austen. So no one would dare say, God, what scum, what vulgar fools they are. But because the young happen to do that now, the ignorant who haven't thought it through and who, who rejoice in their own apparent superiority seem to think that there's something wrong with that. And that, that really angers me because it's so ignorant. It, the internet itself, I've sometimes said, and, and, and I think it's true, is like a city. And, and like any great city, it has monumental libraries and theatres and museums where you can learn an astonishing amount. It can be absolutely extraordinary what's available to you in a great city. But it also has red light districts, and it has slums, and it has sleazy areas you wouldn't want your children visiting after dark, and it has all kinds of weird people gathering around corners who want to take your money off you and con you or steal from you. Um, yes, it does, because it's a city, and cities do that. But my God, they're exciting places to live. My God, they're exciting places to contribute to be. To be a citizen of is a great privilege. And anybody who tries to, I mean, you, you wouldn't get someone coming into London saying, um, all right, what's your name, what's your address at the city gates? Not anymore. Well, maybe you would now, I don't know, ID passes and the rest of it. But people are talking about trying to control the internet in a way they would never dare talk about controlling a city. And the, the, the other point, I suppose, I'd make is simply about the mixture of talk and writing. People always think, it almost goes against what I said about the story writer, but, one, but writing, as opposed to reading a novel, but actually writing letters is a literary art. It is, I mean, it's all it is. Letter is, you know, litter. That's the same origin. It is a, a literal, literary art. And I remember in the first days of the internet, or at least the first days of internet service providers, back in the days of Demon in the late 80s, when I first signed on, as, as I say, before there was a World Wide Web, I remember the only... The, I had a group of friends around the world who were on the, on, on, on the net as well, and... Occasionally, you'd have to ring them up because your connection had gone, and you'd talk about, you know, your interslip connection, your PPP connection, these very scripts you used to have to write in order to use your telephone through a modem to get a connection uh, to be online. And, uh, and of course, you, you know, you spoke to these people, and, you know, they were techie people. So, hello, yes, yes, all right. And, <coughs> and slightly kind of clearing their throat and uh, embarrassed and all the rest of it. And if they're American, it would be the same equivalent. Okay, how well, you know, like... And, and, and it was fine. And, and, but once you had tweaked your subnet mask and actually got online, and there you were, you would email each other, and suddenly this strange tortured, fractured, embarrassed, shy person, when writing, would reveal a depth of wit and self-knowledge, self-deprecation, insight and understanding that was completely at odds with their social character. And that's partly because most people, when you engage with a stranger, there are all kinds of issues that stop us from communicating properly. Age, class, race, 
education level, whatever that might be. All these different things make us embarrassed and make us wonder, what's he thinking of me while I'm saying this? Am I saying it right? Oh, God, am I being too this? Am I being too that? But leave someone alone with a keyboard and an empty page, and suddenly they're telling the truth. Suddenly they're revealing sides of themselves that are magnificent and that they probably never knew they had themselves. They probably, their educational, uh, 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 you know, their teachers probably told them that they, they were worthless at that. Because, but they've got a kind of freedom now. Yes, it's often misspelled. Yes, there is spelt in ways you would never believe. And, and <laughs> you know, uh, your is always wrong. And, you know, all, well, who cares ultimately? You know what they're trying to say mostly. Uh, and it's a mean-spirited sort of person who would, you know, stop someone. You know, like the worst kind of, you know, bitter father who criticizes his son on the football field because basically he's just jealous and wants to be on there himself and relive his youth. Anyway, so this is one of the reasons I'm still excited about the possibilities of the internet and one of the reasons I'm excited particularly about the audiobook because I think people who think, as I say, it's cold, it allows me to do the thing that I suppose I feel probably I was put on this earth to do, which is to entertain in a slightly pompous, educative manner sometimes, I'm the first to admit. Uh, I can't help it, but I like to communicate my enthusiasms. Let's put it that way. If that's slightly like teaching, I can't help it. Uh, and, and, and amongst my enthusiasms are enthusiasms for writers. And, uh, and, and, if, and, and to me, to be able to sit in, in front of a microphone and, 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 and pour out Oscar Wilde's fairy stories or Chekhov's short stories or Saki's short stories, which I've recently done, and, and, and if people can... Oh, God, I'm glad you're pleased. Um, <laughs> And if people can, can download those and listen to them and enjoy them and, and get a real sense of connection and pleasure from them, then I am absolutely thrilled. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure. Plus, I'm also uh, writing my own sort of mixture of story and I don't know what you call it, uh, which, which, which is uh, a, a new thing I'm doing. And, and that's um, very exciting for me. So uh, the reason I, I, I when put on the spot by Apple as to what I wanted to talk about, I said all audiobooks simply because... That's what I was in the middle of. But as you see, I seem to have instead just sketched a, an outline of my, my digital life. But it seems more important that uh, you should ask me questions now because we're, you know, over halfway through. And uh, we ought to throw away the next... I mean, th throw away. We ought to <laughs> throw it open. Uh, so who's going to go first? Yeah, if you could be nice and loud and clear, and I'll probably repeat the question. Net neutrality. Um, yes, um, I mean it's a it's a it's a it's a whole it's a big subject. I mean the um, the, the, the the there's net neutrality and, and indeed freedom. Uh, the electronic uh, uh, frontier is something that I mean I feel personally that the earliest spirit of the internet, which is one of freedom, it's very important that that's that's kept. Certainly, I believe that. Um, that any kind of control of free speech is something that should be undertaken extremely, extremely rarely. It would only have to be in areas like child pornography where I think there is an, an absolute consensus amongst people that there are things that are absolutely beyond acceptable. There are things that I find beyond acceptable in politics and in the way people conduct themselves online, but I'm, I'm okay about turning away from them. I just simply don't go to sites where fascists congregate or homophobes or other people who are likely to upset me because, you know, what's the point? But I certainly wouldn't introduce any law to ban them. Um, in terms of the more the wider political issue where, you know, what does Google do about China, the great, you know, the great firewall of China? What, what, what do corporations do 
um, who supposedly stand on the side of uh, freedom and neutrality and the, you know, the openness of the web when the largest customer base in the world tells them how they're going to play it. And it's against the principles of democracy and freedom and neutrality as we know them. Um, I don't know. Google will naturally say, well, if, if we decline, then Yahoo will step in. And Yahoo say, well, if we decline, then a new company will be formed that will uh, kowtow to, uh, to China. These are very big issues that I can't really answer very easily. Sorry, yes? How would Oscar Wilde have used Twitter? <laughs> wow. Well, as someone said, he, you know, he would have put the wit in Twitter. But um, um, yes, Oscar was a... Was, was, was a um, I think he said about art, which I think is, 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 is interesting. He, he identified the, the rather horrific propensity of the British to, to dismiss anything new, particularly in the form of art, that the middle classes, the great bourgeois mass that uh, constituted those who read the most newspapers and uh, had the loudest voice in society, um, unlike the upper classes, the shrinking upper classes, and unlike the working classes, um, they had this fear of the new. They had this, this, and it still exists. I mean, if you read the Daily Mail on the subject of a, of a modern British artist, it's exactly the same language they used about Picasso and exactly the same language they used about Cezanne and exactly the same language they used about the Impressionists. It's, it's extraordinary how identical the language is. And it's the fear of the new is really strong in the British. And, and Wilde pointed out, he, he just said, isn't it extraordinary that in science... Nobody would suggest, let's go back. Let's go back to the way of understanding blood that the, the ancient Greeks had. It's understood that a scientist is always developing and moving forward and making new discoveries. But for some reason, an artist is always criticized for being new. People want them to stay the same. And I think Wilde's view of the net, in as much as I have any right to second guess what he would have thought, is I think he would have loved and relished the fact that people were constantly devising new ways of using it and new things to do. You mentioned Twitter, and it's interesting you mentioned Twitter, because obviously Twitter happens to be au courant. It's the flavor of the month. As two years ago, people were talking about Facebook. Um, and, and I dare say something else will come along that will replace Twitter in terms of its, uh, its kind of mass chattering class appeal. Um, though on the subject of Twitter, uh, as you brought it up, I think another thing he might have been amused by is how how much it slightly terrifies the press. Um, as, um, as Oscar Wilde said, in medieval times they had the rack, now we have the press. And, um, <laughs> and the fact is uh, that particularly amongst uh, well-known people, if you like, Twitter has suddenly become rather a, a, an appealing option because you can control what you say and how you say it. And if a newspaper writes some s snotty article about you, you can say, oh, well, you can, you can tweet to your followers, I know that journalist. They've always had it in for me since this event here. Look what they said about that person. Look what they said about that person. Aren't they a howling shit? If I were you, <laughs> if I, were you I wouldn't re ever read their, their column again. And that scares them. They might suddenly have thousands of people reading this and thinking, yeah, I'm not going to read that bloody journalist. He's a, he's a, he's a twat. He was cruel to my, my idol or whatever. Now, that's one cynical way of looking at it. But another is simply that it's just marvelous. It, you know, you spend your life paying out money to people calling themselves PR uh, operatives of one kind or another. Not like the lovely Apple PR person there <laughs> that I'm not exactly pointing at, but is smiling down at herself. Um, but, uh, in, in, you know, you, you, you pay them all this money to, to supposedly look after your image, and you spend, you know, a day on a 
Louis Kelkeshow's um, chair in the Dorchester Hotel talking to journalist after journalist about your new film. Well, if you can get a big enough base of, of Twitter, or whatever it might be in two years' time, who will... They are big, they're going to be bigger than any newspaper audience. And newspapers are terrified. It's bad enough for them. I mean, look in America, the, 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 the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, the, the, the New York Times is at a mortgage building, you know. There's real, real problems amongst newspapers. And, you know, the news has been taken away from them by television and by the, uh, cable and, and, and obviously the internet hugely as well. Uh, and all they had left was showbiz and, 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 and comment. And now that's going. And, and there'll be no, no, no reason for anybody to have a newspaper. Well, I'm not going to weep any, any tears over that, I'm sorry to say. Um, but, uh, you know, Twitter, for that reason, I think not necessarily in and of itself as the body it is now, but at it, what it points to, I think, is uh, something that uh, might well upset me. And if Oscar had a Twitter site in uh, the time of... Um, of, of his uh, unfortunateness, uh, shall we say, on uh, his, his court case, he might have been able to get the sympathy of the British behind him. That's the thought, isn't it? Sorry, yes. Stephen, what's your view on um, Creative Commons and free Mashup? Golly. Um, well, um, I'm personally, I have no... And, and this, my, a lot of my colleagues will disagree with me and think I'm, I'm a traitor, but I have no... I'm not that excited about my copyrights. I mean, I think if somebody steals whole wadges of my things and sells them in a pirated form, my publishers would get very annoyed, and I'd go, golly, that's a pity. Um, <laughs> but I'm really I'm open to saying that I am in a profession that is overpaid and overpraised and overpampered, and particularly overpaid. And, you know, if... A small percentage of one's copyright gets leaked away. Well, tough, frankly. I mean, you know, there is an argument, oh, how are people going to develop new things if they're not getting all their money and all that? I mean, yeah, yeah, I suppose. But actually, if you look at it, I think the opening up um, of, the, you know, the opening up of music, for example, the, the, uh, here, uh, as you probably know, the, the digital rights management system, Fairplay, which is Apple's, DRM, as it's known, the, the lock they put on, on all the music you bought in the iTunes store, that's now been removed, or will be removed for everything. And, um, <coughs> it means you'll be able to swap it around and give it to people if you wanted to. But there's a sense, actually, this has been gone through before. This happened with the Philips tape cassette. This was something you could record music off, and, and people, you know, the, the business was rather scared of that. But what happened? Record sales went up. Now, I'm not saying record sales have gone up that much here. In fact, in many areas they have, but there are plenty of instances where people have given away, as it were, their material. Monty Python, for example, opened a, a YouTube channel, as you probably know, and it was a big success, and they uploaded good quality um, copies of their work, and now they've brought them all out on DVD, and their sales are higher than they have ever been. Now, the people who think, well, if it can be got for free, no one's going to pay for it, are to me like people say, if he's got a computer, it means he can't own any books. They don't understand the ambiguity, the complexity, the, you know, the fuzziness of the human mind. Yes, I have pirated software. I'm, I will admit it. And if that's a shock announcement for someone <laughs> you know, who's had a computer for 30 years, then, then how naive can you be? And you all have somewhere along the line. Of course you have. But I bet you've bought a hell of a lot too. 
Your house is full of proper CD covers and proper DVD covers. You're not either a pirate or a good citizen. And I think if people get too, if the creative industry gets too snotty about pirates and criminalizes and tries to create too much of this, you're a thief business, people go, oh, fuck off. <laughs> you know? Um, they're just going to go, you know, I've seen you in your Rolls Royce in your house in Barbados. Don't come to me moaning like this. You know, they've got to use the imagination, which supposedly put them where they are, i.e. as creative artists. They've got to use that, their human imagination, to find a way to say, let's sort this out in such a way that there will still be an incentive, if artists have an incentive other than that of being artists, there will still be an incentive to write books and to write songs and to perform them and to, to own their copyrights. That will still exist as an incentive. But also, there will be you know, a way of disseminating it around that isn't so locked in with ridiculous zones and codes and things. That's my view. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, the Mac and PC advertising campaign. What do I think of that? Well, um, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it, I think it must be a judge to success, or at least, if it's not a causal connection, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a concurrent connection that, that uh, the, around the time the, uh, of the advertising, Apple's stock was rising in every sense. They were selling more laptops in particular, but, but all kinds of equipment, uh, including desktops. Um, you, you, you know the advert, I'm sure, with the, uh, Hodgman, the, um, uh, the, the guy who plays the PC, and um, I can't remember the name of the rather cute guy who played the Apple. <laughs> You're right, Justin. That's it, Justin. Yes, thank you, Justin. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, in some ways, of course, if you were a determined Apple hater, you would find it bilious in the extreme. You'd want to vomit at it. You'd think it was smug and it was self-regarding and, oh, I'm so cool, you know, and all, all the rest of it. But, you know, a lot of advertising is like that. But I think it got the point across. It got the point across that there is something dull and grey and unwelcoming and clunky about PCs, or has been, you know. Um, as I say, I'm not absolutely terminally against them. It's just every time I buy one out of a feeling that they must have got better, they seem to have got worse. And I just get... <laughs> terribly upset and angry about it and, and it's really you know but one day they'll be you know it, one day maybe they'll be open source and 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 that's a pretty anti-apple thing to say because obviously one of apple's most important properties is the is is, is their uh, is their operating system os 10 it's, it's it's enormous it was a huge investment it was a gigantic success it was unix that was the reason i mentioned the next computer being unix of course it um, has a unix kernel but I would be very happy if everybody used a, an open source operating system and they could use it on their Mac and they could use it on a, an Acer or on a, you know, a Dell or if they were insane or they you know, could <laughs> do what, what, whatever they wanted. Um, that, that's my view. Anyway, yeah. Mm. Uh, I think I speak for everyone here in asking, will you be my friend? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be a fr I'll certainly uh, I can be your follower if that's what you mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it has been, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Twitter, it is, it is a micro-blogging site, as it's called. It's a, you know, uh, um, and you, have, you, you follow people who, who are on the Twitter service, and by, by a, you, you send them messages, which is a very easy thing to do, no more than 140 characters. Um, and yesterday, at uh, about 2 o'clock, I was very excited to, to pass the 100,000 mark of my, uh, of my Twitter followers. Um, uh, I had overtaken uh, a number of... Uh, uh, landmarks in that respect, and I'm, I'm now, as it happens, the second most followed 
human being on the planet after, after Barack Obama. So I am, <laughs> I like to when it happens. Um, the, <laughs> well, so as the vice president of Twitter, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm always, it, it, it is extraordinary, but it does mean, of course, having so many followers that there's a big stream of messages passing by that I don't always see. Um, and many of them are, are requests for me to follow them because uh, only, you know, uh, I won't go into the details of how Twitter works. It's really very simple. You can find out yourself. But uh, um, um, people like to be followed as well as to follow, um, which is quite natural. And I'd love to follow every single person who follows me, but I, I, I'm sort of now 70,000 behind. And, and it's quite a, there's no automating, you can't just automatically follow those who follow you. Yes, someone over there. Hi, um, I'm asking a question on behalf of Mike Butcher from TechCrunch, which has come on over Twitter. Oh, he wants to know your view on government pronouncements on tech broadband Britain. Oh, this is the um, uh, Carter report, is it? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I... I don't blame governments for being very ignorant about um, these things and for not really understanding how it works or for being, what's the phrase, American phrase, behind the curve. Um, most of us are. I mean, you know, it does develop at astonishing speeds. And uh, um, it seemed so modern when Tony Blair talked about, uh, you know, uh, internet in every classroom and all that sort of thing. Uh, as it happens, I was a, uh, a something of a Labour supporter in those days and I wanted to see the back of that Tory party. And... Uh, um, I had uh, one of the people who was responsible for that 97 election, Peter Mandelson, staying at my house uh, in 97. It was about a month and a half before the election. And uh, I showed him a website. He'd never seen one before. Then he's a guy that everyone thought, he's the modern face of the Labour Party. He's like this kind of creepily modern PR guy. He's so switched on. He'd never seen a website. Oh, my goodness, what is that? Ooh, what? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> and, and I showed him the Labour... I showed him first the Tory party website, which was not, a, not brilliant, but it had John Major's voice, if you clicked. You went, Hello, and welcome to the website. <laughs> it was terribly sweet. But the Labour one just had a red rose, and, you know, you clicked, and uh, not much happened. There was a list of Labour MPs in Parliament. About six of those were in blue. In other words, they were... Clickable. They were live links because they had email addresses. None of the others did. It's not that long ago when Tony Blair came to power. Um, so th this was a government that sounded in most people's ears as being really modern and switched on and knowing about computing and the internet. It had not a clue what, what it was about. Because in order to be a politician, I suppose, you have to spend your life doing so many other things. And I remember trying to persuade Tony Blair when I was at uh, uh, Checkers once to, to, to put a, a laptop in his red box. I said, you get all these papers, and they come to and they, you just want a laptop in there. It would fit so well. You know these red boxes that ministers and senior people in the cabinet have? They're these beautiful red leather boxes. They've not changed for hundreds of years. Very sort of British thing with an ER um, you know, stamp on it and, a, and, and a, the portcullis of the House, House of Commons. And inside it, the civil servants have piled papers, and you have to work through your boxes. Sometimes you have ten of them in an evening. And it's basically your work, it's your homework, it's your prep, you know. That's it. Mm, you've got to do that, and you can't do anything until you've done it. And I said, well, let me just have a, have a laptop in there. He said, what would, what, what would I do with it? I said, well, <laughs> instead of having these bits of paper flying around, but you could have versions, paper versions of the ones you needed to, but you could, you know. He said, oh, well, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> and then I interviewed him years later when he was just about to leave being Prime Minister. I interviewed him for an Apple... Um, podcast, actually, and, um, and 
he, he said, one, one of the things I've got to get to grips with is to see if I can use a computer when I leave. I mean, it's phenomenal. But having said that, um, I'm not giving too much away to say that uh, our present prime minister has a, or has a very amusing email address, which I'm not going to tell you, obviously, his private email address, uh, which is actually a number with a, with a full stop in the middle, which those of you who've been who are old enough will recognize is a CompuServe email address. There used to be an online service called CompuServe, and he obviously has, is more switched on. But you're talking about Carter, and anyway, when it comes to the, the, the pipelines, the, the, the government are in a bit of a fix because it's a private industry thing these days. They want to regulate it because they feel, and we all seem to feel nowadays, that broadband is a right. <laughs> a brand new technology that didn't exist in our parents' day is now a right. And it was probably the 11th commandment that Moses forgot to read out. Is that, and everyone shall have at least 50 megabyte broadband in their house <laughs> and have the right to complain to Richard Branson if it doesn't work and all that sort of thing. Um, um, and um, I don't know. I, all I could say, we were never did politics. I wouldn't be a politician for all the in China. I happen to be very pleased on this that the, 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 the Tory spokesman spoke about using open source in government where, where government can... Can, can do it. They won't buy proprietary software or pr proprietary operating systems, but they will use open source, and I approve of that. So, I mean, you know, I'm not you know, politically coloured in this at all. Um, I think the March thing, a lot of people feel it was rather a so what document, actually, in the end, as a report. Um, but but the, you know, the infrastructure is the problem. As you know, we have copper wire, which, in a, in a way, the worst thing that ever happened to, to broadband was DSL, because it put off the day when we would replace our copper for, for, for fiber optics, which we could have done 30 years ago. I mean, I was a boy and I saw people holding up bundles of fiber optic wire with lights coming out of them and saying, and one day you will have, you know, 500 channels in just one of these. And, and we, I was going, wow, jolly, gosh, gosh, I'll probably have to wait till I'm 20. Well, we still don't really have it, to be honest. We haven't got the infrastructure. And because copper wire was given a, a, a new lease of life by being supercharged into a, a ADSL, um, we've been rather held back. Um, but I guess, I guess things will muddle along in a rather unfortunate way. And as always, it'll be, you know, the people like me, smart London media people will get really fast access because we can afford it and because we live in a place where it comes. And the people in the country will be the last to get it and the, and the poorer people will find it harder. And I'm afraid that's, that, that's the way of it. And it's, um, it's ended a bloody shame, as the musical song said. You know. Yes. Oh. All oh, right, you, you, yeah, all right. With the one with the mic, I suppose, up to it, yeah. Can I ask you a question about your recent, well, recent trip to America? Yes, yeah. Um, it's an After World quote that's going around my head. Simon said after, <laughs> after I watched it, um, America's the only country that went from barbarism to decadence without civilization in between. How do you reflect <laughs> on that after your trip? Yes, well, I, it would, I don't want to cause you to blush, but I mean, that, uh, that, that quotation has been actually attributed to many different people, and there's no real evidence that Oscar Wilde said it. I, I believe it was actually Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, but it's usually Shaw or Wilde, and not... <laughs> no, I can't say that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not wild about Shaw, and I'm not sure about Wilde, but anyway... <laughs> um, but, uh, um, no, I am sure about Wilde. Uh, America, yes, I, um, uh, I... I love America. I, 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 I always have. I love a larger percentage of it than I do most countries, possibly with the exception of my own, but one's feelings of one's own country are so bound up 
with you know, home and family and uh, upbringing and school and all these things that it's quite hard to separate them. But of all the foreign countries I know, uh, I, there is, for me, less to dislike in America than, than there is in others. There, is a, you know, there are things to dislike in America, in American culture. You know, I, I can't pretend that I can listen to some of the more extremist you know, religion and anti-scientist people without being desperately upset. But such is the plurality of the place, such is the, such is the, the driving energy behind the place that, that, that things, you know, you can get Barack Obama. I know people are going to say, my God, he's not Nelson Mandela plus Gandhi plus Socrates all in one human being. He's, a, he's frail and fallible like all humans. And of course, events may well dish him sooner than we would want. But the very fact of his election in, in, in a country that some people in Europe had almost given up on politically and thought, well, you know, if they can vote that man Bush in twice, if they can not make enough fuss about Guantanamo, if they can not make enough fuss about what's being done in their name, and if their television system is becoming so right-wing, if they're, if they're, you know, Fox, Fox News and if Murdoch is getting his claws into their media to that extent, then, then America is doomed. And then suddenly they, 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 you know, they vote for a man who can speak in whole sentences. Yes, that's one thing, <laughs> obviously. But also, you know, as I said uh, on, 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 on an interview show recently, I said, you know, he, in his inauguration speech, he, he picked on so many things that very few politicians ever would. He said, you know, one of American's great, America's great qualities was curiosity. What a marvelous thing to hear. To me, that has always been one of the great unsung human qualities, curiosity. It's, you know, when if people do sometimes, usually in a mocking way, say, oh, God, you know everything, whatever. I say, I don't know everything, but I am curious about everything. And it's not a, it's not a virtue. I'm not, it's, not, it's just, it's actually a kind of appetite. It's greed in the same way that I have to go on a diet all the time to stop myself swelling up because I'm... So just want, you know, what, do you remember that um, robot children's film, Input, Input, what was he called? Short Circuit, Short circuit thank you, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm like that robot. I just input, 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 input. I need input. It's my mouth. It used to be up my nose no longer, I'm glad to say. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, it's another story, honestly. You don't want to know that. Um, um, and, and, and knowledge. And when, when people, and I hope, I'm sure you're not one of them, you're too bright looking and interesting and, and, and almost universally pretty, I may say. Um, <laughs> but when people say, oh God, you know, uh, my school was really crap. Well, my school was crap. I mean, there were 600 other boys in my school, most of whom were as dumb as oxes and had, you know, I, I, it just was, you know, tried its best. But if, suppose someone was walking down a street that was, a foot thick with gold coins, real gold. And they were having to walk like this because their feet could hardly get through the gold. And they then said, so unfair, I'm really poor. You'd say, what? Bend down and pick it up, you idiot. <laughs> so when people say, oh, God, you know, I just didn't know. I was never taught this. I don't know about history. Bend down and pick it up. It's all around us. The knowledge of human history, the knowledge of human achievement, the knowledge of the universe such as we have it at the moment, partial and not complete, is all around us. So the, the idea that anybody can blame someone else for not stuffing it in their mouth for them is like someone saying, you know, I'm dying of starvation because no one's feeding me. Well, you've got a knife and fork and a plate in front of you. What are you talking about? I know some people have better opportunities than others. I would never deny that for a minute. But, my God, we've never lived in a time. All of us in this room are more powerful than Louis XVI. All of us. 
If he wanted to know something, he'd have to summon scholars and they'd ransack libraries and they'd ride off into different places to find out pieces of knowledge. If he wanted, a, if he wanted saffron on a piece of fish, a smoked, or, and he wanted a piece of caviar and he wanted a, um, you know, he wanted a curry, he'd have to wait three months for a boat to go out. We can walk into a shed where the provender of five counties, is, the five continents is laid out in front of us. And we can pick up a device like this and we can know the sum of human knowledge. We can check up on it. It's an amazing power we have. The only power we don't have that they had is the power over life and death. And that's not a power I don't suppose any of us would actually want anyway. So, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, the, the, you, you, have, you were next, I think. You can yell if you like. <laughs> children spend too much time on the internet. It's very funny, isn't it? I mean, um, I remember yeah, years and years ago, um, the first TV program I ever did was a, was a thing called uh, Alfres... Well, it was a university challenge, but we, we pass over that. Um, <laughs> but it was a thing called uh, Alfresco for, for Granada, and it was, um, it was me and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson from, from, uh, from Cambridge, and... Uh, uh, bright young lad from Manchester who had just graduated, Ben Elton, and a chap from Glasgow who had gone to graduated from their art school, Robbie Coltrane, and we did this show called Alfresco. It was like we were out of university, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were writing sketches. And I remember Ben wrote a sketch in which, um, I can't remember which way, yeah, in which um, there were, you'd have these, um, you'd have a modern family watching they were watching television. The child was watching television. And the, the father would say, Jack, watching, spend all this time watching television. When I was young, we made our own entertainment. And then it sort of rippled into the past. And there was a um, Victorian family there. And there was a child reading a book. So you're reading this book. When I was young, we made our own entertainment. And then you go, <laughs> go to see a 17th century family like that with a child sort of whittling a, a top or something. You're whittling a top when I was young. And it just would go back and back into time. But it would start now with a child on the internet. In the, you should read, it's fascinating to read, the, the contempt for the novel in the, in the late 18th century. It was regarded as the trashiest, cheapest thing that vulgarized the human mind and cheapened human education and was a, a terribly deleterious influence on everybody. And indeed, many were banned from reading novels. Not because of their sexual content, but because they were just considered too, too easy. I mean, people, people read them and enjoyed them. It wasn't improving. It wasn't apparently enriching and enlarging their lives. So novels became um, considered really ghastly. And then in the, in, in the 19th century, a literary novel was fine. But then it, it was the penny dreadful. It was uh, thrillers and coloured coloured stories, you know, Penny Plain and Tuppence Coloured they would be sold as. And, um, and then, of course, it was the radio, and then it was the television in my day. It was, oh, get out of there. You're watching the television all the time. You know, what possible good can it do you? Go and get out and uh, either read a book or go for a walk. And now it's the internet. It's apparently this deleterious effect. Well, if, you know, for every piece of research that says that the internet is bad for someone, there's another piece that says children are sharper and smarter than they ever were. Even games playing, which is... Uh, uh, you might think was the one people would complain about most. Even that apparently seems to sharpen children's reflexes. It certainly makes that punch in the belly all more painful than, <laughs> the, <laughs> than they attack you in the street. Yes, <laughs> girl. Yes. Sorry? This is from my friend who's studying Oscar Wilde at Oxford, actually, and I'm going to invite him to talk about Oscar Wilde. Mm. 
My favourite quote from Oscar Wilde, my goodness, it's a jolly difficult one. Well, I think one of the things that people often forget about Oscar Wilde, I, I hope people now know that he wasn't a, just a primped, peacocky, vain, camp sort of figure who went round spouting out wit, but that he was a, a large, in every sense, large-spirited, large physically, generous, kindly man who, um, who made people, as someone once said, when you stood up after dinner with Oscar, you felt taller and smarter and funnier. He didn't make you feel small, he made you feel big. But one of the ways he did that was he told parables. Um, it was quite surprising. He, 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 he was not a religious man until the very, very end of his life when he'd had a deathbed conversion, which was convenient in those days, the thing to do, just in case, you know. Um, there's a story of him at Oxford that I was like, your friends at Oxford, that uh, he, he, read, uh, he read classics at Oxford. He was considered the best classicist that had been sent from, from Dublin to Oxford for, for many generations. And you had to know what's called classical Greek, Attic Greek, as well as New Testament Greek, i.e. the Greek in which the New Testament is written. And um, uh, he, was given a, he was given a New Testament, the, the Passion, the, 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 the Crucifixion of Christ, and it was in, in the Greek, and he had to translate at sight. And he translated fluently, because, of course, he could speak and read Greek fluently. They said, the very good, Mr. Wilde, you can stop that. And he carried on translating. They said, you can stop, Mr. Wilde. And he carried on, Mr. Wilde, would you stop? And he said, oh, please let me go, and I'm dying to see how it all turns out. <laughs> um, which was, got him into trouble naturally. But um, I'll, just, I'll end on, on one of his um, parables. He was um, at a dinner party where people were being rather bitchy, and he suddenly said, he said um, the devil was walking one evening in the Libyan desert, and he saw some minor demons tormenting a monk. And he went up to see what was happening, and they were tempting him away from his, his religion. And uh, they bowed when they saw the devil and said, Master. And he said, what goes on here? And they said, well, for 39 days and 39 nights, we have attempted to take this holy man of God away from his church. We have offered him powers and principalities. We've offered him delights of the flesh. We've offered him knowledge. And he turns from us. He's still steadfast in his attachment to his church and his Christ. And the devil said, out of the way. And he whispered in the monk's ear, a fraction of a second. And the monk suddenly filled the air with the most noxious curses. And he snapped his pectoral cross in two. And he shrieked imprecations against his church and his God. And all the demons bowed down and said, devil, devil, truly you are the master. What can you have said so quickly that made him turn away from his God? He said, it's very simple. I just told him his brother had been made bishop of Alexandria. <laughs> and that, to me, is a perfect, a perfect parable because it really understands the human spirit. I think it's probably time for one more. Yes, gentlemen, there. Oh, damn, sorry, this lady, and then you. All right, two more. Yep. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear it. Well, and, uh, yes, I agree. I, I, I mean, I think it's easy to, to lose sight of the, the simple miracle of, of what the internet offers in, 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 in the detail. We, we do lose, lose sight of that. There was an old cartoon, old now, in the early days of the internet, uh, um, of, of a dog typing away. And his friend says, what do you get out of the internet? He says, well, on the internet, no one knows I'm a dog. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I think he's really good. So yes, young gentleman with the last question. You sometimes feel that you're restricting what you say about religion, or do you just not really care? Am I restricted about what I say in religion? Yeah, I'm restricted only in the sense that the, um, the vituperation and um, response, if one says anything anti-religious, is so disproportionate. Um, um, the, I've never seen the kind of language that is... I mean, I've seen some of the letters that are sent to Richard Dawkins, for example. He's very brave in his statement of atheism. An atheist doesn't... Unless they're... I, I would, as an atheist, I would never want to be ungracious to a religious person. I don't want to mock them or make them feel stupid. I happen not to understand... Well, no, I understand. I happen not to agree with, with any of their, you know, apparent proofs that God might exist. I happen to think that Darwin, if that's the one they want to choose, is so manifestly beautiful and wonderful, and I happen to think that any argument that a, you have to believe in a God to be spiritual or to find m mystery and beauty in the universe is obviously wrong, but I wouldn't want to be rude to a religious person. I just don't think that's necessary. Maybe Richard Dawkins a little overdoes it. I don't know. Um, but I, I, the reason I try not to dip my toe in is I just can't bear what you get back from these men of God and women of God. I can't bear the insults. I can't bear the, what I'm called, the, the name-calling, the viciousness of it. I mean, it seems to me, if they're, if they're so happy in their religion, why, why can't they let me be happy in my non-religion? There you are. That's um, it's a sad note to end on, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, we'll celebrate instead the plurality of the internet. And um, I want to thank you all so much for being so attentive and kind. And, uh, Good luck to you all, and follow me on Twitter if you, if you dare. <laughs> Thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.